Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. So as I said, we'll be in um, 2 Samuel chapter 13. And as we turn from chapters 11 to 12, as we've closed that uh, section off, you see that the, the following chapters, 13 and what comes after, are what you would say is the beginning of the next section of Second Samuel. Just as we see, uh, as sin enters the world into Genesis 3, the effects of that sin flow through the rest of the pages of Scripture. And so too in this, when we see the sin of chapter 11, we now see the impact and the effects of that throughout the life of David. Uh, specifically in chapter 12, remember when, uh, when uh, Nathan comes to David and explains and uh, announces what's going to happen. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did in secretly, for you did in it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So what you see now is the, the, the working out of that promise, you might say, one of those negative promises uh, of God where he, he prophesies what is to come. And uh, it is not uh, a good outcome, although you would say that uh, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and uh, um, he disciplines the ones he loves so we see the outworking of that in, in verse 11. The conflict will arise not from outside of his house, not from enemies from another uh, nation, not from the Philistines, not from any of the others that have risen up against Israel before, not from another house, even as we've seen before from Saul's house, uh, but it will arise and come from his own house, this internal uh, corruption of his house. This would be the, the bitterness which continues until his death, as we see in Second Samuel. And even as we read through Second Samuel, but even into First and Second Kings, you see this uh, all working out, dividing uh, David's house, which will eventually split a nation, um, you might say. But as we turn to chapter 13, I'm once more confronted with the horrific deeds done throughout the pages of Scripture. A thought that has been going through my mind as studying these pages is that we, we rightly call God's Word His Holy Word. The, the Holy Spirit carried along the authors of Scripture to write down these things for us, as Paul writes in, uh, to Timothy, for our reproof, correction, training up in righteousness, that uh, it's a somber thought that we call this God's holy word, but what is in it is not always holy deeds done by sinful men. Though we have recorded for us the wicked deeds of men contained in God's holy scripture. That it's called God's special revelation. 
that we see in Revelations chapter uh, Romans chapter 15, for whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope, that this is all written down. What is contained in holy scriptures, although is wicked, is still for our instruction, endurance and encouragement, that we might have hope. Well, part of the hope that we have is found in what is to come, that we will live in a time when these horrific deeds are no longer, that we will have a judge who will judge them accordingly. And we might not understand them completely. We might not understand why we have these uh, sections recorded down for us um, or recorded, but we must, again, be reminded that the secret things belong to our Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the wor- words of this law, that uh, we're not told why there are some things that are not recorded in Scripture, but the things that we are recorded in Scripture, as Paul says in Romans chapter 15, are for our, inst- our instruction. But these things that are revealed to us are, belong to us and our children forever. That these are things that we need to meditate on and think and consider, however difficult that might be. That even extends to a passage like Second Samuel chapter 13. It's hard for us to be able to wrap our heads around, but it's very important for us to be able to understand that this is for our instruction, our endurance, our encouragement for us and our children that we might pray that we would have this passage and know this passage to be able to teach, reprove, correct, train us and our children as well. So before we get to this passage, we need to understand the people that we need to know. We see this in verse 1. We see some of them. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amon, David's son, loved her. So here, even in verse 1, we're introduced to uh, the family, the family tree, you might say. This uh, family tree we've looked at uh, before. Absalom is the third son uh, to David by uh, Makkah. Um, and Tamar is referred to as Absalom's sister. So uh, quite possibly it's David. They share the same parents. Um, so uh we have that relationship. But Amon is the oldest of David's sons, born in Hebron to Ahinoam of Jezreel. And of course, David, uh, the family uh, which ties this all together. David's family messy tree, you might say. But you see uh, there's this uh, relationship uh, here, uh, most likely between uh, Mecca, uh, Absalom, and Tamar. And then uh, Amon as well. We know they're all uh, David's children. But we also find something uh, out in this passage that uh, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Uh, We're told about Tamar and we're told that she is beautiful. She's told about the relationship to Absalom. Uh, That might then explain the relationship between Absalom and Amon after this. But Absalom is a key person that we need to understand as we go through these coming uh, pages. Now, this incident in chapter 13 does not really revolve around Absalom per se in the first half, 
But he is a key person as we understand the rest of Second Samuel, what flows from uh, in the following pages of Scripture. And this section really fo- focuses on Amon, but we are introduced again to Absalom, I think, who is the real key player in, in the rest of Second Samuel, along with David as well. So what do we find out about these uh, key people that are in here? We see the first uh, a problem, uh, lovesick, you might say, in verses uh, 2 to 10. And Amon, Amon was tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amon to do anything to her. But Amon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So you have Amon here now in uh, David's house, and sin is rising up within his heart. It seems uh, to have the effect so much that it has a a physical effect on his body. He's mentioned as ill, haggard, uh, weak, and helpless. Now, it might not just be a physical sickness, but ultimately he cannot have what he wants. But we need to understand that these desires to begin with are wrong. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 17 explains, If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. For he has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. So, Uh, You have here quite clearly what uh, it is. There's uh, no wiggle room in this law in Leviticus chapter 20. The daughter of your father, the daughter of your mother, it doesn't matter. Uh, If you see this nakedness, uh, it's a disgrace. Um, But you could just say that Amon is just a 21st century man. He has these indwelling desires. And if you didn't turn to the Bible and... and, uh, we would t- turn to the Bible to see if they're moral or not, but he doesn't. He doesn't turn to the law to be able to understand if it's moral or not. Although Sigmund Freud has not lived up at this point, Amon's inner man's desires, which Freud calls the inner id, is seeking to be able to come out, to be able to work inside of him to get what he wants. Although uh, you might say society outside would uh, forbid this, God's law would forbid this, this does not seem to to stop or quench these desires in Amon. And like most things, counsel is very important. Where you go to seek advice, it's because just because someone is your friend doesn't mean they give good counsel. Often, uh, friends give bad counsel, especially if they're not going to open the scriptures with you. Then it's not going to be good or godly counsel. It often will be, how can I keep this friendship? How can I say the words you want to be able to hear? Now, a good friend can give bad advice. And that's what we find out in verse 3, that Amon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. 
David's brother, his uh, nephew, David's nephew, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. Jonadab and, and Amon's are cousin. Now we're very told we're told about him that he is a crafty man. Now what this word really means is is skillful. Now I don't think that this means that he's skillful in a sense of being wise. You can be a, a skillful criminal. You know exactly how to tweak the law to be able to get what you want. You're good at what you do. Just what you do is a bad thing. So I don't think that we need to read this, that Jonadab was a, as a skillful man, that he was wise in the understanding of how the Bible speaks of wisdom, for he does not give biblical counsel. He is wise and skillful in the sense that he can help you solve your problem. And by solving your problem, he means to get what you want, to find a solution, to be able to work their way around. You might know people like this. They're able to convince you of anything, uh, whether it's right or wrong. They're able to twist or distort um, words or situations to be able to seem like a bad thing is a good thing. And just as Amon might be a 21st century man following his inner id, Jonadab might be a 21st century inspirational quote. Follow your dreams. Follow what's in your heart. Be true to yourself. And the problem Amon is facing is that really that the daughters of the king are one of the most protected people in the whole kingdom. Amon could never get close to Tamar. So what does Jonadab do the uh, skillful man who can solve any of your problems, solutions, well, pretend to be sick. And this is exactly what happened in verse 6 and 7. So Amon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent her to home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amon's house and prepare food for him. So ultimately, he does exactly as Jonadab had told him to do, almost word for word. He carries out his plan, and now his plan is set into motion in verses 8 to 10. So Tamar went to his brother Amon's house, her brother Amon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And as she took a pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amon said, send everyone out, everyone from me. Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And Amon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amon, her brother. So here, all these plans are coming to be. There's no questions asked of David. Uh, we don't know exactly why, uh, why this is. But um, as uh, Jonadab had explained, that he was a he's a very crafty man. He can get what you want. He's uh, going to solve a problem. And uh, so far, he has done what he had said. He does. It, it explained. But now we see the horrendous acts in verses 13. Uh, in verses 11 to 14. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother. 
Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I marry my? Sh- where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be one as one of the outrageous fools of Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now you have the wicked Amon. And finally carries out what his hearts had desired. But notice Tamar's reaction. This is quite the opposite from what you see in Potiphar's wife and Joseph. In that situation, you see Potiphar's wife, the ones trying to seduce Joseph. But Joseph, been the godly man, fleeing from that temptation, running, and even to the point where he's thrown into jail. <clears throat> but here you see Tamar. And her godly reaction. And she provides a tremendous answer. One that I think is worth studying. She starts by clearly explaining no. She starts with the definition of no my brother. Again reiterating why this is sinful. As we saw in Leviticus chapter 20. But not only just explaining no and the relationship between Amon and Tamar, but she specifically says, do not violate me. This word violate means to mistreat, to violate, to humiliate. She, she starts very clearly what the action he would be doing is. But then she gives, again, tremendous reasoning why. Not just don't do this. But she explains, for such a thing is not done in Israel. One of the key things about Israel is it's set apart from all the other nations. That they worship a holy God and therefore they are to be holy as their God is holy. Just because other nations do what they do. uh, Other nations follow their gods and do what they do. Doesn't mean this nation follow their God or carry on this. Often this is the the great weakness of Israel is that they seek to be able to to merge the cultures, merge the worshiping of false gods with the true and living God. They follow what the outsiders do. They start and begin to sacrifice their um, children to Melech and other gods. This is the big issue in, in Judges that often they would uh, follow other gods, worship Baals or Ashtaroth. Everyone would do what is right in their own eyes. And here Tamar is explaining that such a thing is not done in Israel. We don't follow what the desires of our heart. We follow what God has given us in the law. And here is the oldest son of David. And he is the one acting like pagan nations. Doing what is right in his own eyes. What is right in other cultures, but not what is right in God's eyes. Such a thing is not done in Israel. And do not do this outrageous thing. He uses this specific phrase, this outrageous thing. It takes you back to Judges 
chapter 19. We've, we've come back to this all the time, that throughout Judges there's, there's this spiral of sin in which Israel goes in. These cycles of sin and, and, and then the nations coming in and, and destroying them. God's judgment bringing forth them, them crying out in repentance. God raising up a judge to be able to deliver them. But towards the end of Judges, you see, as each time gets, the, the sin gets worse and worse, their spiral gets bigger and bigger. So much so that the last judge in Judges, Samson, is not a just judge. His sin is terrible as well. God still uses him. But the last cycle, it doesn't end with a judge. It doesn't end with them crying out for deliverance. What it ends is is the tribe of Benjamin acting just like other nations, like Sodom and Gomorrah. See this in Judges chapter 19, verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went to him and said, the, the went to them, the people at the door, and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Again, you see this cry. What, what is the cry in uh, Judges chapter 19? No, my brothers. Sound familiar to Tamar's response. Do not act so wickedly. Do not do this vile thing. Again, we see this connection. Now, what is going to happen? Judges was a dark period in the time of Israel. What happens when Israel starts acting like that again? Specifically, what happens when the king of Israel's son starts to act so wickedly? Not just a a tribe far off, but within the king's house. But not only does she clearly lay out her case... But also as a wise woman, she explains that sin has consequences. Not just the reasoning why he should not do it, but what would be the effects of this. She explains from her own self. As for me, where would I carry my shame? Here is the depressing thought. That Tamar, however godly she is, will still have shame to carry from this. This is the reality of incest and rape. The effect, it's not only the sin of the person committing it, but also to that of the victim. And I don't use this word flippantly in the sense that everybody is a victim now. But in this case, sin done to another person causes great effects for them. There's a sad reality that sexual abuse leaves a lasting impression on those that are abused. It is not something just then to be swept under the rug or merely just forgotten. The horrific nature of sin is that one person's sin affects the life of another for their life. As murder takes the life of another, rape takes the purity of another. And we do need to be careful when we talk about this, that shame is real. And often those abused will take it on themselves and blame themselves. We need to be extremely cautious and biblical. That we point out that our sin is ours. And their sin is theirs. That their sin can affect us. But then we 
make a delineation between their sin and our sin. That we all are sinners in the sight of God. But we shouldn't then be carrying other people's sin as our own. But then we can't just say that we don't feel embarrassed or shame. We need to acknowledge that they have been robbed of something. And often by people that are in power or people that are in their family. But we also need to remind them of the hope of the gospel. That in Christ we can find the cleansing and satisfaction. That Christ makes us new. That Christ takes what is broken and makes it whole. We need to be reminded that that Christ welcomes all into his arm. He doesn't welcome us as an abuser to abuse, but as the great shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life for the sheep. But we also see that she not just points out to herself what would happen to her, she also points out what would happen to Amon. As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now you think about this, that here he had sought to be able to follow this skillful, wise advice of getting what he wants, but in the end, he still is the fool. He listened to his heart, his own desires, rather than the wisdom of God. That is what wisdom is, true wisdom. The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That he would be as a fool, a worthless fellow. Think of Hophni and Phinehas. And you have Hophni and Phinehas' priests who are unholy. You have uh, um, Samuel's sons who are unjust judges. And now you have the son of a king who is unable to rule righteously. He's a fool, a worthless fellow. And she does interestingly say something at the end. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, I think this is not a plea, as we would first assume. I think to have um, a plea to be able to have Amon marry her. But I think that in this, Tamar is hoping to be able to get an external perspective that David would discipline Amon. But here, there's Amon, and he has the advice of uh, his friend, his cousin, Jonadab, or the wisdom of Tamar before him, which is godly counsel. But what does he do? He acts the fool. He follows his heart and not the godly counsel of Tamar. And this is what sin does. Sin refuses to listen except for those who encourage their own sin. How careful we should be to do what is right in our own eyes. To justify our own sins. The reality is sin is sin. It doesn't matter whether we call it sin or not. The definition of sin does not lie within. The definition of sin comes from a holy God. And we cannot redefine sin. That's what we're told here in verse 14, that he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. 
he uses his strength to abuse her. Now here is a clear uh, instance in the Bible where we can see rape and also incest. We don't know how old Tamar is, but we see clearly that the Bible explains that he overpowered her because of his strength and he raped her. Here's a clear instance where the Bible does not mince words. We can clearly point to pages of Scripture where we see these horrendous acts. And the Bible clearly tells us what happens. Hence why when we looked in chapter 11, I don't believe that we would say that David raped Bathsheba. Some have made that argument, but I think we need to be clear where the Scripture is clear. And we must read this passage and begin to weep. Not just because of this instance in this time, but this continues to happen, even today. Even in the church, people, pastors, abusing their powers. And instead of pointing their sheep to Christ, they follow their heart's desires. We should weep for those, but also we should see the dismal state of sin which still remains within us. That we so quickly can listen to foolish advice and follow our own hearts rather than godly counsel. But the last thing that we see in this passage is that sin is never satisfying. As the beginning of chapter 13 explains that now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amon David's son loved her. And now we jump to verse 15. And Amon hated her with a very great hatred. So that he hated with which he hated her was greater than the love which he loved her. And Amon said to her, get up, go. That sin never satisfies Sin is worse than any politician, generally speaking. They're full of promises, but in the end, you don't get what they promised. Not even close. And sin is never enough. I've used this before frequently, but from Thomas Brooks, Satan promises the best, but pays the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God pays as he promises. All his payments are made in pure gold. The sin often works in this. That if only I get what I seek and desire in my heart, then finally I might find happiness, peace, riches, honor, pleasure. But in the end, we get disgrace, pain, loss, death. That sin often will lead us down this path where we get nothing of what we think it will give. George Swinock puts it this way. Sin goes in disguise and thence is welcome. Like Judas, it kisses and kills. Like Joab, it salutes and slays. 
The foolish sinner sees the pleasant streams of Jordan, but not the Dead Sea, into which they will certainly empty themselves. The sin often comes to us in disguise, that it does not prance around calling itself sin. Follow me. But often we welcome it into our lives. The foolish sinner sees the pleasant streams of Jordan. But it's not the pleasant streams. It's the Dead Sea. And that's what we see here in Amon. Verses 15 to 19. And Amon hated her with a very great hatred. So that he hated her with which he hated her, was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amon said to her, Get up and go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying as aloud as she went. Again Tamar speaks, but Amon did not listen to her. Again the law specifically explains that if man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, the man who lay with her shall give to the father, the young one, fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all of his days. Now again, I think that we can look at the law to be able to understand the principles of the law, and then we to be able to apply the law in each situation would require wisdom. So, in this situation, would... What happens in Leviticus would be that it's about the nakedness of the shame. So technically you might be able to have a wife but not be able to see her nakedness. So in this case that she would then be able to dwell in Amon's house. He would have to care for her because now he is the one who has taken that shame. So again, I think it would require wisdom and we don't have time to be able to go into that. But Tamar understands this horrific act of her life has changed in her moment. Her whole life has changed. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. Terror takes a second or two. In ten minutes, Tamar's whole life lies in tatters. Once a princess of the house of the king, but now she mourns as one who has lost a loved one, crying aloud as she went. Grief goes deeper than the moment of those ten minutes that has changed her life. And we finally see Absalom's response. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, He was very angry, but Absalom spoke to Amon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amon because he violated his sister Tamar. And what we see is more unwise responses found in words, 
Absalom speaks, but he finally does something. Absalom tells her to be silent. Don't take it to heart. I think this is foolish advice. I think it is it's not that you are to be quiet and silent. I think that you need to be able to encourage people to be able to talk to the right people, to find help, to go take things to the civil authorities in today's time. But he at least he did something. He looks after Tamar. He took her in and cared for her. Now, King David doesn't speak, but he also doesn't do anything. Just like Jacob and Dinah. There is anger that is present, but there is no action from this action. He's then not trying to seek justice. Absalom hated Amon because he violated his sister Tamar. Now what we'll see next week is how these both men, David and Absalom, respond to this wrong thing that has been done to Tamar. But I think in this passage we see that here the, the, the godly woman, the godly person in this chapter is Tamar. But yet she is the one who is, has, has these ungodly acts done to her. That here this godly woman still has to go through all this shame and pain as it says towards the end, that she lived as a desolate woman. I think that is a sad reality, that those who are godly still suffer in this life, that those who are godly still have to face all the shame and pain. But for those who are godly, there is a great reward for those who trust in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.